Bible reading is taken from Paul's letter to the Colossian church, Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Praise be to God for his word. Thank you, uh, Yui, for reading uh, that passage of Scripture for us this morning. Friends, I hope you keep your Bibles open to Colossians chapter 1 as we uh, look at uh, the passage that is before us, and we're going to focus our thoughts this morning on verses 1 uh, through to 8. You notice that it's a massive section, the rest of the section, so we're going to just look at verses 1 uh, through to 8 uh, this morning. So let's uh, come to our Lord in prayer first. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is powerful, it is living, it is dynamic, it is active. Uh, we pray this morning that you would help us to submit to this word, that your spirit will encourage our hearts, lift us up, Lord, in Christ, that we will rejoice in the salvation that we have in Jesus. In his name, uh, we humbly pray. Amen. Well, friends, it, as I said, it's uh, good to be back. It's good to... Uh, uh, read God's word for myself and be able to share this word. It's a wonderful privilege and an honor always uh, to share and to preach God's word. Uh, this is his word, and I pray that we will be encouraged uh, by his word this morning. So today is the first uh, message in a series from uh, this wonderful letter from the Apostle Paul to the Christians in Colossae. So I hope as time goes along, you'll be able to read uh, the book Colossians and that it will be an encouragement as we work uh, through this book. Uh, Colossae was, uh, located in, is, was located in modern uh, day Turkey. I believe that this letter contains principles 
and lessons that speak straight to the needs we have in our 21st century culture. In a so-called post-modern society where truth is rel relative and we live in the midst of all the pluralism that is around us, where anything goes. Truth does not matter anymore. And so there is this constant danger for us as a church when heresy can creep in to the church and distort the truth of the gospel. And we sadly see churches that have departed from the very truth of the word of truth, the gospel itself. So how then should we face the challenges that lies before us? Well, Colossians is a letter that exalts amazingly the supremacy of Jesus Christ as revealed in the word of truth, which is the gospel. And it also gives us incredible and practical challenges on how we should live in the light of the word of truth, the gospel. Chapters 1 and 2 gives us an exposition of who Christ is and the blessings we have in Christ. Chapter 3 tells us of an amazing standing that we already have in Christ, that is that we've been raised with Christ and have been seated with him in the heavenly realms. That's a magnificent thought. And then it goes on into all the practical applications as to how we should live, how we should treat each other, what clothing that we should put on, and how we should live in the home, husbands and wives and children and slaves. And so it's incredibly practical as well. It's a typical pattern of the Apostle Paul. He gives us a theological treatise at the start, and then he brings in the practical implications of all of that. And so this morning, very quickly, very briefly, I don't want to go into all the details here this morning, but let me just uh, uh, give you a very quick brief background. So the question is, who wrote the book of Colossians? It's very straightforward there. Paul the Apostle is the author of this epistle. Uh, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, a very powerful statement. Uh, Paul wrote in the company of Timothy. If you look at the text, you could see that Timothy was with him. And in many of his letters, Paul introduces the person who's with him while he's writing. And so Timothy is not a co-author. Uh, in fact, he's called the brother, brother Timothy. Now, where did Paul write Colossians? He's writing it from I believe from prison. Acts chapter 27, 28 uh, covers Paul's first imprisonment when he was under what we may call house arrest. And he was actually still preaching and teaching. He was helping the church at Rome and winning people to Christ from Caesar's household. Amazing things were taking place in the prison. Paul is in prison, but the gospel is not in prison. Do you get that? Because the gospel cannot be contained in prison. It's powerful, the word of truth. He was winning Roman soldiers to Christ. And all of those things are were taking place while Paul was in prison. And from this prison, he writes four letters. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Now the question is, when did this letter get written? It was written when Paul, as I said, was in prison, and then it has to be, I think, and I believe between 60 and 62 AD. And so this is from Paul's first imprisonment, or the second. There is no evidence that Paul had ever been in Colossae directly. He may have, but he may not have. There's no evidence to say that. He did not plant the church at Colossae. So the question was, is, who is the church planter? Who planted the church at Colossae? 
You see, Paul was preaching. This is quite remarkable here. Right? Paul was preaching at Ephesus when two visitors from Colossae became Christians. One is Epaphras. That's a nice name, isn't it? I've never come across an Epaphras. Right? Maybe that's a new name you might consider for those who are thinking of having children. Right? The other is Philemon. Right? One, uh, Philemon 1 and 2. So let's just see what we know very briefly about Epaphras, and I'll come back to Epaphras later. In chapter 1, verse 7, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So the church at Colossae probably had been planted by the church planter Epaphras. He brought the gospel to them. And it is very likely that Epaphras has come to Paul to get some advice and he brings a report to Paul about this church. And so the question for us is, why is Paul writing this letter? Now there are a number of reasons, but primarily, I'll give you a couple of reasons here. One is, uh, there's, in the Colossian church, there's a heresy that has crept in. You can read about that in chapter 2. It's a form, we will look at that at some point in time, a form of mysticism, Gnosticism, angel worship, all these kind of things in a mixed bag. It's like a tossed salad. You love your salads? For us guys, salads are not the thing, isn't it, for us? No, we shouldn't do that, no. It was kind of a tossed salad of things that was going on in this church all over. And within this context of this heresy that has crept into the church, Paul is writing this letter to contrast the heresies, the false teachers, and their superiority, so-called superiority in Christ, because of who they are. And Paul is writing this letter in contrast to that to make the superior claim of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And so the letter is fundamentally lifting Christ, celebrating the work of Jesus, and put into focus the prominence, the preeminence, and the supremacy of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And that's the blessing we see here. Uh, John Calvin, uh, commenting on this, he says this, this letter, this epistle, to express it in one word, distinguishes the true Christ from a fictitious one. Right? It distinguishes the true Christ from a fictitious Christ. And so in this letter, Paul insists on the centrality and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And my prayer for you, I have been, my prayer for you as I work through this book, and my prayer for us, for you and me, is that as we work through this book, and as I was praying this morning, that this congregation, that as we leave this place, we will celebrate the great Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we work through this book, that we will be humbled to know what an amazing, awesome, supreme Savior Jesus Christ is. And don't we want Christ to be exalted in the church? Don't you? Yes. Oh, resounding yes. At St. Stephen's, we want Christ to be exalted here, right? He needs to be lifted up and glorified and celebrated. I once, I recently went to a church 
And uh, the person who was leading the service did a good job. Did a good job. But then the person said, uh, we welcome you to our church this morning. That is not to me. We welcome you, Jesus, to our church. And I was thinking, I sat there thinking, what? <laughs> Imagine someone comes to my house and they say to me, Chris, we welcome you to your home. We don't need to welcome Christ. He is the... He welcomes us, right? Do you welcome Christ into this place? No, 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 no. It's wrong. He is the one who is in charge. He is the supreme savior. We welcome him. He welcomes us. It is his prerogative to call us into the celebration of praise and worship to this amazing God. And so I was thinking about a particular theme of this letter and I worked this one through. You might just kind of thing that I came up with, but you might like to add, subtract, you might say this is not the whole thing, Chris, but anyway, it's fine. Jesus Christ is the preeminent, sovereign, all-sufficient, and supreme Savior in whom the fullness of God dwells. I, I came up with this theme, okay? So he is the redeemer and sustainer of all things and over all things, the firstborn of creation, the head of the church. That's kind of the overall kind of thing that I can see in uh, this, this book. And so as we study this letter, I trust that our view of Christ will be further enriched and that our love for him will grow deeper and deeper. And so Paul writes now to the saints and faithful brothers, verse 2, in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace to you. The description, your friends, is very telling in the light of the issues confronting the church at Colossae, which was affected, as I said, by false teachers who were essentially viewing themselves as super spiritual people over the Christians at Colossae. So Paul makes it a point to describe the believers and their status before God. And notice the status in the Greek, it's the holy ones. Agios, it's the holy ones, the saints. And he's determined to remind this congregation, to remind the people of God of their positional status before God. Alright? So it's a celebration of your status before God is determined to remind them, and so he calls them saints. Holy. What's the word saint? It essentially means holy and set apart. In the New Testament, all Christians are called saints. Right? And it's used collectively. So we are saints. That is, you don't have to die and be canonized by a pope to be a saint. Yeah? Or by the moderator of the Presbyterian Church. No, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> right? No, no, no. As you come to Christ, the believer is, is made a saint. And God has done this work in the lives of his people, changing them from sinners to saints. And if you look at the book of Colossians, it's quite amazing the number of different ethnic groups that were brought into this church. And sinners' lives being transformed from being sinners to saints. Can you see that? And the positional transfer of this is a significant transfer. It's a massive transition that has taken place. That God has done this work in your life and mine and his people and made us saints. What a blessing. The status has changed. And so here this morning, friends, then God has set you apart for him. The good news is when the saints go marching in. You know that song? Oh, when the saints 
go marching in. Oh Lord, I'll, I'll be in that number, right? I won't sing it to you this morning. Or when the saints go marching in. Because we are part of the saints, the body of Christ. And then he describes them as the faithful brothers. They are now part of the family of God. That is that God has now taken these people, made them saints, and put them into a new family. And what a family that is, to be part of God's family. I was reflecting upon that. I don't have brothers and sisters. I have no one except my own family, my beautiful wife and children, and just the normal family around my place. That's it. But I was thinking, I was away from this church for three weeks, and I missed the church family here. I was off last Sunday, and I was debating. I was just come back. I'm thinking, I must go back to Surrey Hills. And I'm thinking, no, I'm actually on leave. No, but I do want to go back there because I miss my people. I, I love to be part of the family of God here because you are uh, my family. We are part of the family here at St. Stephen's, aren't we? And so God has changed. And then he's done grace. Look at this, grace. This is not some sentimental word that is placed very important in, in, in this greeting because I think sometimes we can read the greeting and just... Swift it go past so quickly. But grace. You see, grace here in the context of this letter, this grace is such a powerful reminder of what God's grace to them is and was that He has set them free in Christ. They don't have to be under the bondage of the heresy of the false teachers. Grace sets you free. And then there is peace. There's a relationship with God and having peace with God. Our Father. What a blessing this is. So in this greeting, Paul is addressing them as those who are members of the Lord's family who are holy and faithful brothers in Christ. And then, let's keep moving on. Because the gospel has transformed their lives. Have a look at verses 3 uh, to 5, please. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Now Paul is praying for the church. Now I'm sure, friends, brothers and sisters here this morning, I hope that you're praying for the church, right? Not just St. Stephen's, while we pray for this local church, I trust that we're also praying for the wider church, don't we? Shouldn't we be praying? Shouldn't we be praying for the church here in Australia? We want to be praying for the church. And when we pray, what do we pray for in the church? And next week, we, or next time we look at it, not next week, I'm not, uh, the moderator is preaching next week, but next time we look at it, we'll see some specific prayer points as well. But have a look at this text here. It is he's saying, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a grateful thanks. That's the Greek word. They're giving thanks when we pray. It is a grateful gratitude. And the focus of this thanksgiving in prayer is not the saints at Colossae. Paul says that he is regularly remembering them in his prayers, but he prays specifically and gives thanks to God for something. And these things, he says, the familiar words, faith, love, and hope. <laughs> Can we, sometimes it's faith, hope, and love, Right? But here it is, faith, love, and hope. And I'll explain that in a moment. So he says, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope, four and five. Now what is faith? You see, faith does not 
believe the facts about Jesus, it is trusted in him alone as our Savior. It is possible, friends, to give affirmation to the historical facts about Jesus without really placing our faith in him. All right? You can believe he was born to a virgin, that he lived a sinless life, but actually not put your faith in him. So it's not a question of whether you have faith, because everyone has faith. Let me explain. The other day, I was driving on the Westgate Bridge. That's a magnificent bridge, isn't it? Not, not as, uh, well, the Sydney, you can't compare Sydney Harbour Bridge, right? But, but it's quite a nice bridge. And I was driving on the bridge. And for a moment I thought, hmm, look down there, it's pretty deep. Now when I drove on that bridge, didn't I, when you drive on bridges and so forth, don't you exercise faith? What do you think? Aren't you? You're exercising faith, right? What's the faith you're exercising? You're exercising the faith to know that when you drive on that bridge, that that is safe, one. <laughs> Secondly, it's not going to collapse. Third, it's going to take you from point A to point B, and as soon as you get over the bridge, you go, whoopee, it's all good. Right? But the bridge has been constructed by engineers and civil engineers and so forth, and we are trusting that their work is solid and will get us to place. When you came here this morning and sat in the pew, did you ever look under the pew to see whether it can hold your weight? Uh, I mean, in, in a proper sense, all right? No, you just came and sat, right? I never looked at whether it can hold me or not. I just sat. We exercise faith all the time. In a spiritual sense, we exercise faith as well. And so Paul is saying, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, it is faith in yeah, specifically, it is faith in Christ Jesus. And the key question is, in what or whom are we placing our ultimate faith? Now, friends, the Reformers, they spoke about three essential components of saving faith. I'm not a uh, Latin scholar. I studied Latin, but I'm not a great scholar. But these three words that they said about saving faith. One is, you can pronounce it any way you want, any Latin scholars here, not Tishir, I think, is the, is the one. And that is the content of faith, what you believe. So when we talk about faith, we are also talking, the reformers spoke about the content of that faith. What is the content of the faith? What is the body of truth that you believe in? Secondly, they spoke of the essences of faith. That is the conviction that the content is truth. Do we get that? So what we believe, the content of our faith is essential, yeah? And the conviction that the content is truth. And then they spoke of fiducia, that is, the entrusting of ourselves to Christ as the living truth. So we have the content, the conviction, and the entrusting. That is saving faith. So when for example, when our faith is being challenged, when Christianity is being challenged, we come back to the, what is it? To the content of our faith. When it has been challenged in the workplace, when it has been challenged at school, when it has been challenged at university, when it has been challenged by our friends, that you might sometimes become spiritually wobbly. 
for a young person going out into uni for the first time and meeting all the socialist agenda that's on the, on the campus and you've been challenged, you might sometimes tend to become a bit wobbly spiritually. That's a phrase I just coined up, right? A wobbly spiritual thing. So when we are going through that, you come back to the content of your faith. And the content of your faith then is grounded in the person of that faith as is revealed to us in the word of truth, the gospel. And so when you put the content of your faith, the conviction then comes that this is true and then you entrust yourself to Christ. And that is the faith that Paul and the reformers in particular spoke of. The object of our faith is more important than the quality of of our faith. Yeah? I'll say that again. The object of our faith is more important than the quality of our faith. And Colossians teaches us that Jesus Christ is God and that he alone is the object of our faith. Do you have that faith this morning? Do you? Then, love. And this faith in Christ proves its reality by working through love. Look at that. The primary fruit of the Spirit. You know, we worked through Galatians last year. What is, the, what is one of the fruits of the Spirit? You should remember all those sermons from Galatians. Yeah? Don't make me discouraged this morning. No, it's okay. <laughs> Galatians chapter 5. Right? The fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. What is it? Galatians 5 verse 22. Right? The fruit of the Spirit is, what starts with it? the first one? Love. Love, love, love. 1 Corinthians 13. If you've got all these things, and if you don't have love, you are nothing. And so Paul brings out this aspect of love. And in our study, so we, we saw that last time in Galatians, love is an action. It's more than just an emotion. Love is something we do. It's easy to love somebody who loves us, right? But it's hard to love somebody who is really difficult to love. You agree? I'm glad you do. Right? It takes nothing at all to love people whom we love. But it takes effort to love those we find difficult in getting on with. You know, love, there are so many songs written about love, right? I mean, I listen to 91.5, the, uh, the Smooth FM. Right? Doesn't matter. I love the love songs. I love uh, songs like uh, Camila, Cabello, you know, Havana and all that. Doesn't matter. I don't worry about the lyrics, I just enjoy the music. Right? So, but love is more than just those kind of things. Actually, I was listening to an interview by Camilla Cabello, who wrote that, uh, that song, Havana. And uh, you see what I'm doing with my spare time, friends? I was just driving when I heard this interview. And she said, I want to have enjoyment in my life. I just want to enjoy every moment. Good for her. Don't we all want to have enjoyment in life? And love is central here, isn't it? That, you see... Someone said this. This is a poem, really. To live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, 
Now that's a different story. <laughs> See, real love acts and does things. But now, what would this love mean for us here at St. Stephen's for a moment? It would mean, perhaps, friends, just some examples, that we be patient with each other. It would mean that we serve one another by showing care for each other. It would perhaps mean that we don't have a critical spirit where some people have the gift of criticism. It's not a gift in the Bible, but, you know, uh, that, that we have a word of encouragement. Encouragement. Encourage people. What a wonderful thing to give a word of encouragement, right, to someone. Yeah, it will mean to be hospitable. It will mean that we're not proud, that we're not arrogant. It would mean that we're able to say, I'm sorry when I've done something wrong. Right. Well, let's ask ourselves this morning, who needs more patience from us? Who needs more time from us this morning in our love? Who do you and I need to forgive? That is love. Who needs our kindness? That is love. Who in our lives need to be shown the love of God through our actions? That is love. I know I have failed. You know that in your own lives perhaps. I'm not saying you have, but I know. I have failed in the way I've talked to people perhaps or done things or may have not done things. I know that. But love will forgive and move on. Because what is at stake is the body of Christ. So Paul says, uh, your love, loving others the way the Lord wants us to love, will transform our relationships. Do you have a love for the Lord's people here in general? And then he talks about hope. As we move on in our text here, and from this faith and love springs hope. Look at verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Think about this word hope for a moment. Is hope really that essential for living? Do you think hope is essential for living? Hmm. Perhaps it's not essential. Or perhaps it is, right? The Webster defines hope as to desire with expectation of fulfillment. Therefore, to hope is to anticipate the desire that one day that desire or that dream will become a reality. So hope always looks to the future. It keeps on going. And Paul is saying here that this hope has sprung up because of the word of truth. You see, friends, in the New Testament, hope is beyond just the normal hope so in this world. Our hope in this world is uncertain. Is it not? We can't say for sure that the stock market is not going to crash this week. Can you? What happened to the stock market last week? I was speaking with an older gentleman who has put, it's got a lot of money invested in his stocks. And he said to me, Chris... I'm just shattered that this has happened. But you know what? I'm not going to sell my shares because the stock market will come back. Now, that's a hope. For those of us who invested in the stock market, we might think, well, what is happening here? But nothing is certain in this world, is it? But our hope, when the Bible speaks of hope, it is certain and it is confident about this hope. Hope for us as Christians is knowing that Jesus lives in us. You see, hope for us as Christians is to know that our shepherd is with us. Even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Psalm 23. The shepherd 
is with us. And even when we die, we have hope for eternity because our hope is in Jesus. And so someone said this, uh, maybe you heard the words written on a tombstone that said, uh, said this, Consider young man as you walk by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, you soon shall be. So prepare young man to follow me. Words on the tombstone. That sounded good, but some guy came along and added this little postscript to it. And it said this, to follow you is not my intent until I know which way you went. <laughs> to follow you is not my intent until I know which way you went. You see, let me pose the question, friends. If you died today, do you know for certain that you would go to heaven? If the Lord was to take me or take you to today, do you know for certain that you will go to heaven? You see, can you say, I know so, or would you have to cop out by using our English word for hope by saying, I hope so. I hope so. You know, sometimes I met with people and shared the gospel. And people have been in church, not particularly this church, it doesn't matter. And sometimes we had the conversation and asked, well, what happens if you die? Will you go to heaven today if something happens? I hope so. People who are sat under the teaching of God's word. That is not a hope so, is it? Is it a hope so or is it a definite hope? Are you for sure if the Lord was to call you that you will be with him in eternity in heaven? Yes. Why? Because of Christ and his love for you and your faith in him. That's why. That is hope. And so, Peter says this in 1 Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And, and, and the text here says that, isn't it? Speaks about an inheritance kept for us. And I've got to keep moving on, friends. And look at this text here in verses 6, to, uh, six and 7 to 8. This gospel, this word of truth, has come to you, as indeed the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. You see, the gospel at that time hasn't gone to the whole world. But certainly in Asia Minor, the gospel was impacting. And today, it's bearing fruit. We heard the chaos theos, right? What's happened there? Is it wonderful? We have a mission family from overseas here with us this morning, taking the word. We hear of things happening in Africa. We hear of people being converted in other parts of the world. Is not the gospel bearing fruit? And so a wonderful thing of this gospel bearing fruit is, have a look at the text here, friends, in verse 7 and 8. You learned it from Epaphras, our fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. And who has also told of your love in Christ. So Epaphras heard the gospel. He shared the gospel. A church is coming to be. Bearing fruit. 
Now, you and I might not go into ministry full-time or become missionaries, but don't we all have the task of sharing Christ? Don't you? We do. And I pray that God will make us like an Epaphras, that as we have heard this gospel, that we will share it as well. And so as we conclude, friends, this morning, let us thank the Lord for the word of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us thank him for his grace and peace to us in his son, Jesus. Let us, by his grace, continue to put our faith in him and pray that we will grow in our love for the Lord and for one another in this church. Please pray that we will continue to be a loving, gracious family here. The love of Christ. Let us celebrate the hope we have in Christ and praise God for the word of truth, the gospel of truth. And let us share this gospel for this world needs to hear it. The word of truth. And so this week, I pray that we will think about these things in our relationships, one with another, in our homes. May the gospel, the word of truth, lead and guide us in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Father, we pray that you will strengthen our faith in Christ that you, by your Spirit, will help us to love each other as you have loved us. To be willing to be gracious, to forgive, to restore relationships, that the love of Christ will flow through us, Lord. And where we have failed others, to be able to say, I am sorry. We pray that your love will permeate the ministries of this church that you would help us, Lord, to rejoice in the hope that we have in you. And we pray that you'd help us to share this gospel with the trust and confidence to know that it will bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.